Ladies and gentlemen, friends and listeners, and welcome to the inaugural first episode of the Skill and Bones Radio Podcast, a program dedicated to games and geek culture coming at you from the wet coast of Bellingham, Washington. My name is Bradley Lines, and I'm both a bonafide bonded and licensed time traveler and one of a trio of hosts speaking to you today. Across the table from me is the man who will one day inspire us all to follow him into our own enslavement and the century and a half of darkness to follow future Lord Imperator, Kevin Seacack. Kevin, hello. Hey, fellas. And sitting right beside him is the future grandfather figure of the Resistance, the name whispered in shadowed clutches of freedom fighters from their tunnel networks, Mr. Lauren Tinsley. Lauren, how are you today? Well, thank you, sir. Before we get underway, I'd like to take a moment to say welcome and thank you to the tens, uh, let's stay positive here, the dozens of devoted fans who, having tuned in to Skill and Bones for so many years, decided to seek out and find the origin episode of this program, and apologies for what you are about to hear. Also, a quick hello to the anthropologists, historians, and archivists listening in order to better understand the slow and furious descent into madness that will one day lead to the Khan Sikak monuments of suppression built on precisely every 30 miles of North American highway and seawall. I cannot explain why Kevin eventually does the things he will do. All I can tell you guys is that it gets better. Just not right away. Not for a long, long time. And with that, let's get started. Kevin! As all of humanity eventually will, let's turn it over to you. <laughs> Have you seen Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens yet? And given yes, how many times? Uh, I saw it twice, one of which was last night. Oh, good, last night. You guys got another showing in? Yeah, yeah Lauren and I went. I know for, uh, for me, right before the credits started, right before the second showing last night, um, I got a moment of apprehension right before I watched it, because I watched it first right after it came out. You know, really loved it. And then, you know, it's been a month or so. I just hear a bunch of criticisms from a lot of people. I know it's really popular, but there's also a lot of dissenting opinions. Yeah, there and, sure are. Uh, and I was afraid that the second time through that the criticisms of it would be too glaring for me to, to sit through. 
But, when, uh, when was the first time you saw it? The Friday, the opening. You opening did see weekend. it on opening weekend. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it three times now. And one of the things I actually wanted to talk about today was the differences between the times that we, the differences between the different times you saw it and how it kind of felt. Because I saw it on opening weekend as well, and I went and saw it alone. Uh, I didn't I didn't have anybody else with me? But I was in the crowd full of other people who were there on opening night. And so I mean, apart from just being interested in in uh, the the opening night feeling. I mean, Star Wars is like this social phenomenon, you know, yes. and so the being there with the crowd makes for an additive experience to the actual movie going that you don't always get with uh, some of these blockbuster films, you know. I mean, the Star Wars crowd is different from any other movie crowd that I've Absolutely. ever been in. And I was, I, I was there for opening night for episode one, episode two, and episode three. And it was a very different feeling. I mean, yes. at the end of the movie, uh, as opposed to going into it in a very different feeling. I think this Star Wars movie, and I wasn't alive for the first, like, The New Hope when it first came out, but I'd say that uh, The Force Awakens is bigger than A New Hope, in, in some senses. Oh, probably. And when we went, I had to fight myself from clapping again when the music came on and the fanfare, the opening sequences and stuff, it was still that way for me. Yeah, regardless of all the sort of nitpicking or, or criticisms of it, I think that I understand the, the need for Disney, having purchased such a huge franchise to make it a really safe movie that they can get everybody invested in, make it good for the kids, make it good for the seasoned Star Wars veterans that maybe watched it when they were kids in the when the watching the originals of the trilogy in theaters. One thing I did notice that was really different um, be between the times I saw it, because I saw it that opening night, that's the sound was not that great in the theater that I was in. The second time I went and saw it with my wife, we were in another theater where the sound was not that great, but the third time we shelled out for uh, the whole IMAX experience with the 3D and everything like that, and we had the great theater sound, you know. And the the sound made all of the difference. Like in the latter uh, parts of the movie, the fight in the snow, the sound of the snow falling, and they specifically had sounds for the snow hitting the lightsabers mm -hmm. and sizzling and popping. Mm -hmm. And you could just hear the snow falling around the forest, and that is exactly what snow sounds like in a forest. It made for a very strong presence in that theater. But one sound was missing from the movie at the very beginning, and that was this. Did that intentionally? Of course. I mean, it's no longer 20th Century Fox, right? It's right. Disney that owns it now. But it didn't have that same opening to Star Wars feel that I was really used to. Right. I think it made the fanfare pop even more. That dead silence of the Lucas films kind of f coming in, and if you had the IMAX, you saw it really nice because yeah. it was 3D at that point, yeah. and then all of a sudden you wait, then boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I would also like to comment on something Kevin said. I think that Disney did well with their characters. I think they did better than they thought they would with these new characters. Ray, Finn, Poe, TR8R, you know? and TR8R? TR8R. Who's TR8R? Um, he's a fan favorite. He's the guy with the, um, the little club that he fought. The um, electro stick. Oh, the electro stick. I didn't realize. They never, I never heard a name for him before, so. That's the fan uh, nomenclature they gave was TR8R. TR8R. Yeah. Traitor. So he's getting more of a piece. Um, they've delayed the episode eight, so Ray can have more of a piece. Poe, Finn, um, the female in the, the silver armor. Phasma. Phasma, uh, Phasma yeah. All, so well, they can have more presence. They pretty much have to give her more presence. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't give her any less presence than she had in this movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just going to be her shouting from the, from the bottom from of the dumpster. Yeah, from Hello? the bottom of the garbage chute. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> 
And you had to love that they put her down the sanitation shoe. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was really surprised that that she didn't have more of a role in the opening movie, given given the actress that's. I almost right. feel like they did that intentionally as like kind of a bait and switch, um, same way that you know Boba Fett. Really, in in the movies, and he didn't really participate a whole lot, and he uh, and his character has really taken off in the in the imaginations of of fans for years. Um, yeah. And I think that they kind of intentionally almost did the opposite thing for Phasma, where they set her up. You know, they had all the leaked images early on, uh, and everybody was getting excited about the Chrome Stormtrooper, and then to all of a sudden have her. Uh, you know, sort of disappear. And really just straight up vanish. Yeah. Yes. You know? And it wasn't any kind of really impressive trick or plan that really got set up to get rid of her, you know? I mean, yeah. it was... Finn had this loose plan of we'll invade this one particular station and we'll capture this high-access stormtrooper that can shut down the shields of the entire planet and they just happen to run across her in the middle of the first building that they check. I mean, it was a little bit uh, easy. His plan was... We'll use the force. Well, yes. <laughs> to which Han Solo replied, "That's not how That's it not works." Not how the force works. Yes. <laughs> Han Solo, expert on the force. Right. Well, he did have a son, right? Yeah, I agree that there. Uh, a lot of the obstacles were overcome pretty easily. There weren't any big pitfalls that people fell into. But I think they needed to keep it moving. They had a lot of ground they wanted to cover. And so how much time do you spend looking for the proper shield generator? Rather. Than, oh sure, yeah. You know. the, definitely, the movie had a had. Uh, a sense of speedy pace, let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah, I call it understated, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I kept on moving. So, I mean, speaking of it being a little easy to kind of get through things here, one question has kind of stood out in conversation and in debate throughout there. Was, the, was it too easy? Was the movie too easy specifically on Ray? And I guess the question, as phrased elsewhere, is, is Ray a Mary Sue? And secondly, does it matter? Don't think it matters. I think Ray was incredibly strong. I think she went through the most hardship. I mean, her, her story is, is cast in loneliness and hardship. That's where she starts out, is hardship. She's the, the Star Wars equivalent of a rock climber for a half, one quarter portion, right? All alone, by herself, on Jakku, the side of, like you were saying, Kevin, a desolate planet that's only known because there was a huge battle above it. That's the only reason you know about Jakku. Mm-hmm. And she's the one that was captured by Kylo Ren. She's the one that was tortured with the mind probe where she found her strength. So she found her strength in adversity. She did get through the things pretty easily, though. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not talking, I'm not talking in terms of like a personal journey that's, that's fully explored. I'm just talking about as represented in the movie. It was pretty simple to find the ship to get off the planet. They fixed it fairly easily, <laughs> fairly quickly. There weren't, there weren't a lot of failures along the way. Uh, in the same way that there are failures in uh, the original Star Wars, you know, when you when you talk about trying to make the leap to hyperspace or something like that, I just I just watched episode one again last night, or not episode one, excuse me, episode four again last night. Don't ever do that again. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> and the hyperdrive fails. You try and get that thing started, and it's not working right. There's problems with it. Yeah, there's... yeah. But they were overcome easily enough that they were able to escape the star destroyers that were pursuing them. Mm-hmm. Same thing happened in this movie. But I think you can make the same argument of a New Hope that the the sort of the sequence of it of Princess Leia manages to get the plans to the droids before she's captured. The droids manage to have a guy not shoot at them so they can make it down to Tatooine. They make it all the way to Luke, who takes them all the way to Obi-Wan, who takes them to Han Solo in the very first cantina they check. I mean, they're led directly to exactly where they need to go at every moment, so I don't really see a lot of failures or a lot of, well, what's plan B now? That's true. And there was sacrifice in that movie. We lost Han Solo. It's not like it was a magic carpet ride all the way through. And the guy we lost the earliest in the opening, like, five, ten minutes in the first battle, 
he isn't just a note of interest. Who's the guy that gave the the map to to Poe? Who is that guy? Well, yeah, we don't we don't actually know that, do we? Uh-uh, but he's just a note of interest. He, his sacrifice, his death, means nothing to us. That's true. Hmm. I look at it from the Ray perspective. I, I kind of look at it. I think I think she's kind of fits in in the more pure hero vein. I I don't think we're in this world with uh, Han Solo being really the returning star of this movie, right? Yeah, right. And Han Solo was the pure uh, anti-hero, yeah, you know, right. oh, throughout the course of episodes four through six. Right. And and Ray is really the opposite cast of that. And I think that I'm currently in the mode of movie watching where I can really appreciate that. I'm at this point in my life where I'm kind of getting tired of anti-heroes, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. The complex good guys, not always what I'm after anymore, you know. I just want somebody that is in it for the right reason and is really just kicking ass for good, you know. A little bit of nobility. A little bit of nobility would be fine. A little bit of uh, solid manner, you know, mm-hmm. would be great. The the Jedi's really, they really embodied that, at least for what they were supposed to be. The, right, the, the idealism. The idealism the, that you saw in uh, Obi-Wan through the prequel trilogies was along those lines. Well, and I think this was movie had a lot of the opposites, like what you're saying there, with, with Rey being almost the opposite of Han Solo being pure rather than yeah the the scoundrel who becomes good and uh, similar Kylo Ren has kind of the opposite arc of of Anakin where he's wanting to be bad but still is like worried that he's still a good guy yeah like that's that's an actual thing that's he's scared of his own shadow in that way and so you get to see that opposite arc where he's trying to descend further into the dark side to to realize more power I wonder if criticism of Rey uh, being too good is a little bit early from the standpoint of, you know, they may they may be setting her up as pure good through this first movie so that later on in the trilogy that they're that they're running right now, they can better contrast her descent into, you know, the dark side. If that is where they could go with it because they could easily cross paths with with uh, Rey and with Kylo Ren. Yeah. Or, or at least just have her, you know, go through some real trials and tribulations through the next movies. If, if she's sort of the, the, the pinnacle of what a Jedi is supposed to be, but she hasn't, uh, other than being an orphan, she hasn't had a lot of failures. So maybe in the next movies, things start to fail. She loses people that are close to her and that sort of thing. And so she's able, you know, you see the, the championing white knight being sort of brought down to what the real galaxy is like. Yeah, yeah. Because they're giving it her connections. Even though she lost Han Solo, which she had an immediate connection to, mm-hmm. she's got Finn, who came back for her, which was huge for her, right? Yeah, yeah. And she's got the Wookiee now. See yeah. how Chewbacca takes it. Yeah, I gotta say, um, the fact that when I was walking around uh, pr- uh, prior to watching the, the movies the uh, in the toy stores and looking, doing Christmas shopping for my kids in December, that seeing that all of the play sets for the Millennium Falcon had Rey and Chewie in them was the dead giveaway to me beforehand that Han Solo was going to die in this movie. The fact that you found a playset with Rey in it was is very interesting because it's been kind of a stink that Rey hasn't been in any of the playsets. Is that right? That might You might have found the only playset with Rey in it. I can't, I'd have to do research to confirm that. Yeah, it was, was Rey and Chewie. Yeah, there's a huge stink over that. And she's, there's now uh, Rey toys. It even made Nerdist News, for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. No, I didn't either. Research. Uh, i'm kind of off the topic topic a little bit in the final battle scene also i like the way the lightsabers were more showcased oh yeah like in the first eh, not the first excuse me four through six they're just like a prop they're in the background but in this movie they were really in the forefront you got to really see a lightsaber several Mm -hmm. times Mm -hmm. and in the final battle scene 
I think that that lightsaber resisted Kylo Ren because the trajectory when the pole was finally completed was the same angle, right? Yeah. It went past Kylo Ren to Rey. So I think it resisted his initial pulls until she pulled for it, and then it came to her. Yeah, it could be. I I, I kind of looked at the... I mean, well, I mean, I can, I can see where you're going with that. Any, anytime anybody's ever tried to summon a uh, lightsaber in any of these movies, there's always that little bit of tension where, is it going to move? Is it going to move? Is it going to fly at him kind of thing? Yeah. So having that happen with Kylo Ren just kind of fit into the history of that for me. I, I kind of looked at it like them both pulling on it at the same time, and she just pulled a little bit harder in it. Yeah. If they're standing on... Like, if it was in the middle, I would go with you, but I, I'm... That's what I'm saying. It wasn't in the middle. They, they weren't fighting against each other. They weren't res resisting right, each right. other. It's just that he pulled, she pulled a little bit harder, it went past him, you know? Fair I don't enough. know. Fair enough. But that, that lightsaber fight in the trees um, is by far my favorite part of... Like, favorite scene of that movie. Absolutely. Um, because it really... One of the things I took away from this movie is that the special effects are extremely well done but they're really tastefully applied. They didn't go overboard. There's not built-from-the-ground-up CG environments. It's clearly shot on locations on Earth, and they use special effects where they need to, mm -hmm. and I think that that was what they were afforded by the sort of advance in, in movie-making technology is they were able to have those lightsabers cutting through trees and having the snow sizzling off of it or shoving into the snow and vaporizing all, and then uh, also with the, with the twilight, able to have the light effects off the glistening now snow that was off huge. the trees. That was huge. And, for, and, a, and a first for the series in this movie, I think. And reflected was. in their eyes. Yeah. Was, when their sabers were locked is one of my favorite moments is they're looking at each other and seeing the lightsabers uh, actually reflected in their eyes. Yeah, the difference the, the difference that's made in, in this movie versus the earlier ones, just in terms of the, the effects of the lightsabers on the uh, environment, um, it was really big. Uh, I, I was watching, uh, like I said last night, I was watching episode four again. And the versions of the movies that I've been watching has been the, the despecialized edition, which I don't know if you've seen, but they've gone through and they've removed all the special effects that came out in the special edition, which is great to see because you're still watching it in the high-def Blu-ray style of the movie. But what it really shows you it's the same thing as, as other old movies that are taken high def. Sometimes you kind of see things behind the scenes that didn't you never really wanted to, to have the magic broken there. And removing the, the new special effects is really apparent in this when you go back to watch the movie like that. Because, specifically, you don't see any kind of lightsaber glow on anything ever. Right. You know? It's just that fluorescent tube kind of effect out in front of people with no lighting on anything at all. And it really stands out. Yeah. If you haven't checked out the despecialized editions, I really, really recommend them. They were done by these guys on the uh, original trilogy forum, specifically this uh, editor named Harmy who went through and got a number of sources uh, in order to put these movies back together after they were ripped apart and redone by Lucas. How much work was that? There was a ton of work. I mean, there's a, there's, there are a couple of making of videos out there uh, it, that you can find of the number of sources that they had to use to put these things together, including including the, the new special edition Blu-rays, but also the old laser discs. They found stuff off of these old... They found a couple of original reels of the movie that they took some effects off of. Uh, and then a couple of Italian versions. There was, I mean, there's there, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 different sources that they pulled from in order to re-put these scenes back together. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, you will have to check it out, but it's kind of hard to get. Not I know a guy. I can yeah. borrow him from <laughs> You can borrow him from him, yeah. 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 yeah, there's a few wretched hives of scum and villainy we could probably draw. The usual routes, you oh. know. How cool was it when Kylo Ren stopped the blaster bolt? Before? That was so cool! So badass. Oh my god. <laughs> I was a little surprised it hung there for as long, like for that entire scene to wrap up. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, it was a, it was a genuinely new manifestation of the Force that we haven't actually seen in any other movie. You yeah, know? And it's, yeah, it, absolutely. You know, if he was just going through choking people, they were like, yeah, okay, he's choking people again. Yeah, right? you know. 
And, I, and I've only seen the movie in IMAX, so with that level of sound. But that was one thing I wanted to, oh. to that I appreciated as well, is when he's doing, like, sort of force interrogating people or whatever, the way they layer the, the bass notes Absolutely. and stuff like that in the background uh, makes things sound like almost like they're underwater to really have layers of the force rather than just people pointing at things and people pretending they're choking and things like that. It really felt like <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. actually going on. Yeah. Was there any kind of visual effect to that? Was there was there any kind of shaking to the screen at all? Was there some kind of pulsing that went along with that? Or was the it... bolt pulsed. It was yeah. shook in oh, air. Yeah. And yeah. again, with the lighting effects, is as they took Poe past the bolt, you could see it reflected on the armor of the stormtrooper. Yeah. 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 Super badass. Super well done. Yeah. One of the two, from my understanding, very restrained use of uh, lens flare in the movie, as apparently J.J. Abrams is really a big fan of using lens flare, and it, uh, found himself not using it quite so much in this one. And that's never bothered me. I mean, I've heard that yeah, criticism yeah. a thousand yeah. times, but I, I didn't even know about it until I heard people pointing it out and criticizing right. it. I was right. like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't really care. To me, I put that on the level of people complaining about, that's not what Andy Mantium looks like with the Wolverine movie. <laughs> yeah. oh, do you know what animatium looks like? Or, you know, if you're going to criticize him for lens flare, couldn't you criticize the original Star Wars trilogy for the, how many uh, screen wipes they have? Oh, God, the, yeah, yeah. The rotating wipes and everything. Yeah, sure. Which are, I mean, that's that's fine once or twice, but they use it pretty consistently throughout those movies. Or just sparklers for your explosions. Yeah, yeah. until it becomes a gimmick, you know. Yeah, that's the downside to the uh, Despecialized Edition, uh, for, as compared to the Lucas updated ones, is that when the Death Star blows up, it blows up in that tiny little pew kind of way that is actually on a scale less impressive than one of the TIE Fighter explosions. The, t- the last TIE the Fighter. The last TIE Fighter, yeah, that, that's coming out of it, which has this gorgeous rolling explosion kind of thing. Greens but, and Yeah, com- compared to that, the Death Star blowing up is just like a little tiny firecracker. Of all the criticisms of all the things that they, uh, the similarities between A New Hope and The Force Awakens, you gotta love the fact that Poe and Finn escape equivalent of a Star or a Star Destroyer, not a Star, yeah, yeah. in a Tie Fighter. You never got that. You yeah. hijacked a freaking Tie Fighter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Poe was excited. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I always wanted to fly one of these things. Yeah. Just the essence of that, and then having Hansel had to steal his ship back for. For goodness sake. Yeah, <laughs> which was, a, you know, a pretty fortunate find for him. Yeah. yeah. If we're talking about, you know, if we talk about happy coincidences in the pace of the movie, coming running across the Millennium Falcon while you're out there just hauling whatever the hell those those tentacle beasts that he was that he was rolling around out there with, which R- was a... Raptors? Real... Raptors? Maybe. Land Dianogas. Land Dianogas? Dianoga is the thing that pulls Luke underwater in the uh, garbage compactor in a oh. new boat. So it's got the tentacles and it's got the eye stalks. Yeah, 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 okay. That's what it reminded me of as a land Dianoga. All right. Um, one of the things that I uh, really liked about this movie as far as bringing back the original characters is I felt Chewie was allowed to participate in the uh, movie a lot more than he was able to before. Absolutely. I don't know how cumbersome the old Wookiee costume was, but <sighs> I imagine pretty. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. he was able to move around uh, and interact with characters in a way that he wasn't really able to before. He just kind of stood around and was tall. Yeah, and growled in the original trilogy. Yeah, and he was true. an actual character, and the and the sound of his bowcaster uh, and the impact of his bowcaster. Well, the bowcaster was practically a character in oh, itself yeah. in this movie. Yeah, it was great. Um, I, the only disappointment though was when when Han did die at the end. That I wanted Chewie's uh, berserk rampage to include like. Chucking a few stormtroopers into that. Closet. Yeah, yeah, you kind of want a little bit more physical action out of him in, yeah. in, in the expression of rage as opposed to just taking a pretty good shot. I actually, I, I hadn't really put a whole lot of consideration into it until I saw this one little comic strip about that particular scene 
which was Han dying, falling off the bridge, Chewie going into his little berserker fury kind of thing there, lining up the bowcaster on Kylo Ren's head, and then it goes into this flashback scene of Chewie raising this baby on the ship right. of Kylo Ren, not able to take the shot and shoots him in the in the side instead. You know, I mean, maybe he spares Kylo Ren's life because he's known this kid his entire life. You know, he was yeah. he was there he was there with Han through all of the depression and the disappointment and the separation of the marriage all that time after Kylo Ren goes to the dark side, you know, I mean, Chewie was there for it and he had to make that split second decision and probably a little bit beforehand, he knew what was coming. He knew this encounter was happening as he was watching it play out. Yeah. And so he had to decide, am I going to shoot Han's kid? Yeah. Tough place. Yeah. But I did love that perspective shot really far back where you can see Ray and Finn up in the very top yes, left just having just yeah. come through the door and you can see Chewie just one level below them and then the huge Ray's bridge. Got her, with Ray's got her opera glasses out looking at the... You gotta mention the, the fading, the dying sun yeah. that was coming uh, through the, 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 the doorway that Ray and, and, and Finn opened onto yeah. the, two, the, the father and son. I was torn between that. that thing being gorgeous and just a little bit too much on the nose. You yeah. know? Like, the, the, the sun, sun. The yeah. sun dying... The sun killing. We named sun and sun. I mean, those are our words. No, <laughs> no, no. We set it up. I, J.J. Abrams just capitalized on it. I'm, la- I'm laying this at his feet and at his feet specifically. <laughs> J.J., what are you doing here? I want to I want to add one nerd note. Okay. Of all the magical and high science things they do in Star Wars, in this movie, they moved a fucking sun. They yeah. take it from one spot. And they bring it into this planet. They disrupt the oscillator. And now that's where the sun is. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. true. That's true. That's amazing. Yeah, they did rather. It was It was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit, uh, I had flashbacks of space balls, though. Uh, oh. Of them vacuuming up the, the air out of, from around the planet, you know, nice. as they're sucking all of the energy out of the sun and just storing it in the giant bag in the middle of this planet. Yeah. I'm curious what uh, consequences that would have for the other. For system. local gravity. <laughs> yeah, all the, all the planets <laughs> around. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You're gonna, we're gonna in the next movie we're gonna see people like all spinning out of control on their planet and vomiting profusely. And... Yeah, that really ought to have had a per, probably a much bigger effect on the the, the the topography of the of the Star Killer base itself. Right, like right around the area where all this solar energy was being sucked into the planet. There were still trees on that planet. I kind of don't think so. You know. <laughs> You're sucking a sun through this portal. You're not really keeping a snowy forest around well, snow. Yeah. When, they, when they fired it, it devastated the forest around it, so I think it's safe to assume that it probably does the same thing when it collects it. Devastated probably should have been an understatement there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the test firings. Like, how many planets did they go through to perfect this technology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not something that comes out of the lab, you know, working on day one. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be on that prototype. <laughs> I, suppose, I, suppose that, um, I suppose that for, for as much... As, for as much shit as as J.J. Abrams gets for uh, uh, blowing up another Death Star, you know, for for having it be, be a third time, this probably uh, uh, peanuts compared to the number of Death Stars that the Empire has blown up in just trying to construct them. Yeah. <laughs> Quality control may not be their number one function, especially if they're leaving open ports that you can easily shoot, you know, proton torpedoes down. I thought they did have a much more intelligent approach to to building a super weapon like that, though. Rather than building your own moon that has a gun in it. Take an existing sphere in space and put a gun on it. Well, yeah. A lot more yeah. cost effective than, than building your own. Yeah. So. All right. Well, you know what? I think we should take a break and get a word from our sponsor here. How do we already have a sponsor? I already told you. I'm a time traveler. Many years ago, when I was a competitive 40K player, 
Uh, my favorite list was um, a Venom Spam list. And the thing about Venom Spam is it's super fun. The bad thing is there's a lot of little vehicles and you need rec markers to play. So I looked online and I found these great rec markers by a, a company called uh, Worldsmith Industries. Well, my God, that happens to be our very first sponsor. Really? Tell me more. What do you know? Worldsmithindustries.com, originally created after a couple of successful Kickstarters. They're makers of terrain resin for tabletop wargaming. Current offerings include a variety of walls, water features, and some scatter terrain. The area terrain system involves a number of area terrain bases into which you can plug things like trees and rocks and giant crystals. There are also blank bases that can be used to make custom inserts or just make some open space. You can mix and match. It's easy to make a variety of terrain types just by switching out inserts. Because it's resin, it's a lot more durable than a lot of scratch-built terrain. It's highly detailed and really easy to paint. Skill and Bones listeners can get 10% off their orders by entering the code Skill and Bones at checkout. Go to WorldSmithIndustries.com. That's our first commercial. You better slap these fives, dude. Oh. <laughs> You're listening to Skill and Bones Radio. Damn, son, where'd you find this? So, the big game down at the club right now, my second love is X-Wing. This is my second time starting X-Wing again. The first time. I started with probably the wrong list, a very complex list. It was a TIE Swarm list, eight ships, very difficult. What I've realized starting the second time is that I'm bad at X-Wing. I also am bad at X-Wing. Uh-huh, and those maneuvers are hard. I think that's where you separate the levels, your level of playermanship, if you will, uh, with this game. My second time around, I'm going with a two-ship list. Yes, they're two big ships. I know it's a bit cheesy, but I'm learning. It's my training wheels list. I'm learning mm -hmm. how to maneuver, mm -hmm. and I haven't flown off the board yet. So, <laughs> hey, good job. Thank you very much. I've been playing for a while, and I'm still good for one of those. You know, once, twice a year, I like to celebrate by throwing a ship off the board. Yeah. <laughs> did, I did that with Dash Rando just the other day. Nice. Pouring out your, your champagne on the side. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, thing that I have a hard time with, uh, with X-Wing, and the reason why I am bad at X-Wing, and the reason why I, I, like you, picked it up when it first came out and then immediately put it back in the box and couldn't <laughs> right. play it anymore, is because of just how precise of a game it is. Yeah. It's hard to play for the beginner. And even now, with the level of play that uh, it tends to attract, every time I move a piece, I bump a piece. And every time I bump a piece, I feel like I'm cheating at that yeah. game because it is so very important exactly where and how the ships are placed yes. yeah i mean that does happen in games it's part of it people understand and you're usually gentlemen about it you know well that's what i wanted to ask you about is how does something like that work at the high level games because you've played in tournaments and you've seen and watched high level tournaments yeah, you just try to do the best you can, um, and you know if it, if something gets bumped, uh, then you just put it back as close as the two players can uh, agree that it was in the first place. And if it requires a judge, it requires a judge. Yeah, I haven't ever been in that situation, but I can certainly see that happening. This is something where a lot of these games now are being recorded mm. and being watched live, often online, and so I was kind of wondering, like, if you've got a recording of this thing that you can go to, is this something where we might actually see instant replay come into a board game? Yeah. I don't think there's any reason why that shouldn't happen. I mean, there's all kinds of technological advancements with recording and streaming and, you know, storing and being able to draw this right back up for the instant replay. I think that's very possible and would take a lot of pressure off both the players and the Slow organizers. the game down a little bit. Yeah, but perhaps. It's a fast game, though. Yeah, I mean. but for premier untimed games, you know, the, the top game of any tournament is not timed. Usually it's 60 or 75 minutes for the... That's a good long time. Yeah, for the regular games, but once it's the two people at the top of the tournament, that's an untimed game. Three, four hours. Wow. Um, you know, and so if it slows it down a little bit, that's okay. 
but we're, we're talking about a lot of high level stuff. And frankly, I, I don't see me getting there within this year. No, no, me neither. Um, maybe, you know, so what about schlubs like me? Well, that, that is one thing that I felt that the community is, is grown away from is as it's matured with the game, I feel like a lot of the people that are jumping on are being kind of left behind. Uh, there isn't a lot of conversation, you know, answering questions that new players might have. But the game is growing really rapidly, which means there's a lot of new players out there asking these same questions. The style of game that's being played, though, has been really pigeonholed down to that 100-point tight list construction kind yep. of that is not the only version of the game that's been designed. Right. True. And it's super competitive. Every time I've played an X-Men game, it feels like it's it's a it's a tournament game almost. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are great YouTube videos uh, about how to fly in formation uh, and articles that you can read that kind of get you into that game, but those have been largely not replaced, but, you know, the, the more popular videos tend to, and, and topics rise to the top, and those are more of the current meta questions and things like that, high-level stuff. Can it be a casual game? I think it can. I think it's a good opportunity for, um, for the epic format mm-hmm. to, uh, to really address that. Talk to me about the epic format. Oh, the epic format is, uh, is you know usually 200 points per player, and it includes the huge ships. Your rebel blockade runner, your rebel transport, and now the Imperials can participate with the Imperial Raider and the Gazanti Cruiser. The, I don't know the Gazanti Cruiser. It's a uh, It deploys TIE Fighter. It actually has the TIE Fighter models literally attached to the bottom of the model. Wait, what? Yeah, they, uh, their flight stands attached to these like suction cup type things on the bottom. You can fit four... TIE Fighters on the bottom of this ship, and they deploy mid-game. That is the coolest damn thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I did not know that. I just saw them, you know, in the plastic in the box. I, Wow. Yeah. Sounds like that Protoss unit that I still can't remember the name of. <laughs> <laughs> so I think now that the Imperials are able to participate and they have the ships of their own, I think that Epic uh, really could be a format that could be taken a little bit more seriously. We still don't see a ton of that being played around no. here. More earlier, I think. Yeah. I think, you know, everybody was excited about the Blockade Runner when it first launched. But uh, the Imperials couldn't match. But the Imperials couldn't do it. So, you know, it's a lopsided game. The, the interest wears off. But now that now that they're on the same level, I think there's no reason why it can't take off. And it's better as a casual game in that environment because there's so many different combos you can build into a 200-point list oh. that things can get pretty silly pretty quickly if you're trying to take it as, as competitively as possible. And really, 100 points works great for competitive formats because you can play enough battles in a day because they're so short. Sure. That it, it, it work, it's easy to transport. It's easy to set up and take down. Um, whereas Epic just becomes a little bit more cumbersome. And so for that reason, works better as a beer and pretzels or a drinking all night game. Now, I don't personally own any of the larger ships. I have only the medium size and smaller stuff because transporting the bigger ones seems a little bit more of a hassle. And I know you guys have got the really the, all the tackle boxes and stuff for your regular uh, X-Wing games. But the big ships... First of all, they are big and you know hard to move. But second of all, they are expensive. Yeah. They just cost a lot. Yeah. And I actually, I only own the Rebel Transport um, because it came with some new X-Wing pilots. And so I had to get those guys. Yeah, you do. But there's some guys in town. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I never, yeah, I never got the Corvette because since I've played mostly in a competitive format, the only thing in the Corvette that really had value for me was a C-3PO crew car. Oh. There's a couple, you know... Hon- <laughs> so you buy a $60 ship in order to get a pl- in order to get a playing card? Yeah, that's that's what's happened. Uh, a lot of people have done that, specifically to get C-3PO, specifically to make the Millennium Falcon with Han Solo that much better. Wow. Yeah. Sidebar on that note, Fantasy Flight Games recognize how powerful C-3PO is. 
and they're they're throwing a, a tournament soon where the participation prize is. Oh, like it's not a, it's not a tournament. It's through the whole store championship season. So any store that has got the the kit for the store championship season has thirty two C three PO cards to distribute. Whoa! So they realized they probably have gotten all the sales for the Corvette that they're going to get for that reason. And now they're just going to flood the market so that anybody who wants that car doesn't have to buy an $80 ship to do that. <laughs> and so I think they realize that that's not the way they want to present this game. They don't want to turn it into a pay-to-play game. Fantasy Flight has really been knocking it out of the park in terms of their support for the community that's playing it. And I think that when you say, when you bring up, like, it's an $80 ship, I agree. That's expensive. But I don't just see a fantastic model with a mediocre paint job. What I see is the value that you get from the company itself. As far as like tight rules, I'm, I'm more of a video game player, so mm-hmm. I see like video game companies, Riot, uh, Blizzard, they'll correct things. And you know, you see flashes, flash, um, flash uh, patches to fix uh, imbalances within their, their characters and their, their systems. You also see this in Fantasy Flight games. It's the only miniature game that I ever see do this. Where they go out and they update the rules. Yes, yeah. and, and they listen. They absolutely listen. They want their fan base to give them feedback. Yeah, they did the same thing recently for Netrunner. Well, I think it's an opportunity that they've got just with card systems, whether it's Netrunner or X-Wing or Armada. If they see that something is consistently weak, they they have the opportunity to, to release a card that just gives it a little nudge in the right direction. You get a few of those nudges, and all of a sudden the ship's participating in the game as often as anything else without having to have a complete rules overhaul. The actual cost of the game, though... I mean, you can find other similar models out there, including really identical models like the Micro Machines. Yeah. Uh, they have X-Wing ships that they were selling a ton of over the Christmas, especially uh, the new Episode Seven ships. Yeah. Uh, you t- if you want to go out there and you want to get a Poe's ship, right? Yeah. You want to get Poe Dameron's ship, it's, it's out there. And you can get it in a pack with a, with a TIE Fighter, one of the new TIE Fighters, for like five bucks, yeah. right? And it's a perfectly suitable x-wing to play the game with and the only real difference i think that you're getting is that with the fantasy flight models you have a more consistent quality control you've got the you know that your ships are not going to come out all bent and warped and but i think with those bends and those warps this you know you you watch a star wars movie and all the good ships have you know authentic battle damage you know and some of that you know those miscasts can kind of play towards that well, that's true, but there's battle damage, and then there's X-wing foils that just go straight across each other, and not, you know, and a, a can, a laser cannon that maybe needs a, a pill to stand up right again. Ah, but I don't know. I like that there's a third market. I'm always been a third party market kind of a guy. I, I enjoy that, and also if. I was thinking about um, Home One, One. Is that the the big Armada ship? That, yeah. For the for the Rebels? Akbar's flagship. Akbar's flagship. Well, if and, you know, if you wanted to take two of those, how would you differentiate? Well, you might want to chop one up and and put that on there and modify the model somehow. But I don't want to pay a hundred dollars to have. Yeah. You know, so if you have the third party stuff and you want to kit bash and stuff, I think that's a great way to go. Yeah, it just depends on what you're ultimate goal is with the game i mean if you do eventually looking at armada as a, as a tournament game then they don't allow third party they, stuff yeah they don't allow that or modifying the ships oh really specifically why I've does never, that matter because everything's based on the basis it doesn't i've never had any i've never seen anybody make that criticism but technically some of the x-wing ships that i've painted or uh, converted could be disallowed at tournaments but i don't think that anybody would have any interest in doing it would be that. wrong it would be wrong of them to disallow your beautifully painted <laughs> repainted x-wing ships absolutely strongly agree with that i have a question for you 
Now, the worlds and stuff, the winning lists, are they pay-to-play lists? Are they the newest, hottest ships? Is that what consistently wins worlds? No, a lot of the ships that uh, came out very early on in the game cycle have continued to be good ships. I mean, only recently has Han Solo finally died off a little bit um, mm-hmm. just with the advent of the twin laser turret doing such consistent damage um, and not needing to have an arc on, on Han Solo who's boosting past them and mm-hmm. you know evading. Well, maybe now they'll finally kill off Han Solo. <laughs> You'll never die, Brad. How dare you? <laughs> How dare I? I don't remember who I was talking to about it, but they were saying uh, after they had watched uh, The Force Awakens there in the bathroom afterwards, and there was a couple of people that had watched the movie together, they were speculating about how Han Solo is going to pull out of that. They're like, do you think he died? Or do you think that maybe... No, like, I kind of think he died. <laughs> he got run through by a lightsaber, fell, in, fell into a chasm. Bottomless chasm. Into a planet that then exploded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think he's, I don't think he's going to come back from this one. Yeah. It'll just be frozen. Cool if he did. <laughs> it was just—it was just a really big carbonite no, pit there. No, at the no bottom. he's <laughs> <laughs> not again. Remember when I got froze? Uh, no, you know he's not coming back because he saw how excited Harrison Ford was to be promoting the movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was so happy out there. Yeah. You, Finally, you, I'm dead. Yeah. You don't. You don't beg to be killed off in Return of the Jedi, and then 30 years later, yeah. you know, decide ah, I didn't really want to die. I yeah, want right, to do right, this right, again. Right. Anyway. Um, but what I am interested in for X-Wing and, and the future of it, and, and specifically related to the movie, is because the movie didn't come out with a bunch of new ships. You know, it had the new. X-Wings had the new TIE Fighters. Both of those were already represented sure. in uh, in X-Wing. Um, so the next wave is probably six months out. Mm-hmm. They tend to be. Um, and the next movie isn't for another whole other year. So what are we going to see in More X-Wing? More than a year. I think they're doing a, a movie a year. Because they're going to have like Rogue One. Oh, I think, Rogue but... One, of course. That's where you're going to pull in a whole lot of extra new ships, new, new pilots, new characters. Mm-hmm. Right, but we still have that gap. And I'm curious to see what the next X-Wing wave will be. If, it's, if they're going to draw more expanded universe stuff from a time before Disney took over. Or they go, or maybe Disney will throw them a bone and give them the opportunity to release some some new ships before the movies come out to generate that hype. Yeah, because the scum and villainy ships, those are all from the extended universe. I don't really know the extended universe that well. And, you know, I look at this game and other war games of this type that have multiple factions. I mean, mm-hmm. four plus factions yeah. in there. And this has really only got two plus the scum and villainy kind of hanging there on the side. And I'm wondering, do you think that this is sustainable to have just the two main factions as, as a war game? Yeah, well, technically they are expanding the factions. The new T-70 X-Wing is part of the Resistance faction, which is a sort of a sub-faction of Rebels. Okay. So I think they've opened the door to that exploration a little bit, um, and I don't know if they have any specific plans with it, or maybe they just set it up that way so that depending on where these movie arcs go, mm-hmm. you could you know, continue either adding more sub-factions or a new parent faction. You know, there might be a sub-faction of Scum and Villainy coming out in later movies. Okay. But as you um, commented about, Disney has announced that they're going to do the same thing they did with the Marvel Universe. They're going to do a lot of shows. There's going to be some uh, some seasonal episode type shows and stuff like that. I think that the content is coming. We just have to be patient for it to, to dribble out to us. Yeah, because yeah. there's really, you need more characters, more recognizable characters to be able to put on cards for, for a game than you, what you would necessarily get out of an individual movie or show. Yeah. And to speak to the, what you said about cards right there, do you think they'll go down just to card packs? Just selling pilots instead of the ship along the I don't know. I don't feel that strong. They're just throwing that out there as an idea. I think it's something that they could do if they put themselves in that position, but they have gone on record saying that they do want to avoid that model for the oh. game. They want 
it to be you're buying plastic and with the cards. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, Thank you. But that being said, if they feel this game's kind of run its course and that's the last option they've got, I mean, who knows how far down the road, but it, it's already superseded their expectations of the game. It's grown well beyond what their initial this thing's ambitions been huge. were. Yeah, yeah, this thing's big. I mean, but by the time that they're done with this thing, they're going to be giving away pilot cards with McDonald's Happy Meals. It's like... You're right. And big overnight. I mean, honestly. Yeah, they, yeah. Since 2012, I mean, it's three years in, and it's huge. I mean, they kind of nailed it right in the middle of the zeitgeist, you know? I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're right there with the hotness of Star Wars. So. And I think they nailed it with the, the new uh, Force Awakens core set, releasing that before the new movie mm-hmm. to generate that hype and only revealing Poe as the, the named character, who actually ended up being a really good, uh, really good ship in the game. Yeah, you wanted to talk about Poe. You mean Poe, the ace <laughs> pilot that took out... <laughs> 10 TIE Fighters in like 20 seconds during The Force Awakens. That was that a guy. really well shot scene. Oh, I, mean, I love the, that. The, the, the way that they tracked him through that entire thing was from the just, From the perspective of right over Finn's Finn, yeah, It was yeah. phenomenal. Oh, uh-huh. it was great. Yeah. And he, there was no effort. He just like ding, ding, and this guy lined up and ding, ding, and you know, it just pop, 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 yeah. pop, pop, pop. Yeah. It, was, it was a really good sequence. And I think that having him as good as he is and as generally useful as he is in X-Wing is a good buy-in point for people that are getting, I mean, now is a good time to get into X-Wing. They just came out with a new core set with an updated damage deck that you know that fixed a lot of the problems the old one had and, and, and sort of streamlined and balanced the thing. Um, and on top of that, you've got a well-known named character that people who don't play miniatures games will recognize. If they go and see a demo table set up and there's Poe sitting on it, they might sit down and play that game. And then if since Poe is so good in the game, that's going to be that they have that great play experience and then they think, okay, this is a game I can cool. get into. Cool, cool. I think that one of the the misfires or the missed opportunities, probably a better way to say it, the missed opportunities of A New Hope was that Biggs and Wedge had such small pieces, but the community loved Biggs and Wedge. Even to this day, people yeah, love those not guys. Love that mustache on right? <laughs> people even loved Borkins. Right? right? <laughs> and I don't think they'll miss the boat this time. I think that considering also why they delayed the, the eighth movie, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I certainly am hopeful for it. Yeah, well, that's part of the advantage of living in a, a world where you can get that instant feedback, and so you can figure out very quickly mm-hmm. on, and you're you know writing the next movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, people clearly want more of these characters. Yeah, so let's address true. that. You know, you don't get that level of feedback in the '70s when you no. when you first start releasing these movies. You just kind of have to go with what your gut tells you. Well, we're gonna hear a little bit more of Poe in a little bit. Let's get back to those damage cards really quickly because yeah. they updated the rules in regards to those and I kind of, I, I never actually bought the new starter set and so I don't know what they fixed. So the what they realized in the with the old damage deck is that it, it affected some ships way more than others. There was a damage card where uh, you lost your pilot ability and any of your elite pilot talent upgrade cards. But if you didn't have any of those. It didn't do anything. It was I just see. a damage. There was another one. There was another one where you lost your secondary weapon. If you didn't have a secondary weapon, didn't do anything. So they had certain cards that didn't do anything at all to to certain ships and had catastrophic implications to other ships. And so they decided they wanted. If you're getting a face up damage card, it should be a problem no matter what. It shouldn't be something that you can effectively ignore. And so that's what they went through. Is they instead of having the lose your secondary weapon, every weapon you fire with is minus one attack die, whether it's your primary or your secondary, it affects them both equally. And you like it better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, they have, for their tournament rules, they've made it so that you can actually choose either one right now, either damage card, but I think eventually they're going to, I'm hoping eventually they get away from that. Because what's the point of fixing something if you can say, well, I don't really want to play with that fix. Okay. 
I want to choose the one that's going to. I'm going to take all the best advantage, the gene- generic yeah. ships, and hope these crits don't affect me at all. Yeah, I think it was a. I think it was a r- the right time to do that with the release of the new movie and with that new core set. I think it made perfect sense. Fantasy Flight is just on top of it, aren't they? They're yeah. just on top of everything. It's the reason why I'm willing to pay again the prices because I'm willing to back that horse. Those Fantasy Flight games. Yeah, they're doing such a good job on so many different IPs. Are we cutting a promo for Fantasy Flight right now? <laughs> Wait, is this our second sponsor? No, no. We, do not. we can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, let's shoot for our second listener. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Fantasy Flight Games, if you're the second listener, <laughs> give us a call. Okay, well, I think we can wrap that up. And um, we're going to play a little game when we come back. Let's take a break. And I've got something lined up for you. We're going to see how well you can identify your lightsaber duels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What I have here right now is a little bit of an audio game for the both of you. What I stumbled across was some sound files of the various lightsaber battles from uh, episodes one through six. Oh, good. I've got five of them right here. Oh, shit. With the music completely removed and the only sounds remaining being uh, the lightsabers themselves. And so we're going to see if you can properly name that lightsaber battle. (laughs) So how are we going to know, like... Well, who's going to judge whether we've named it or not? How are we going to know if we've been successful? Oh, I know. I know. Don't worry. You'll be judged by Lord Vader himself. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> are we ready to get started? Um, yes, Alex. I think my whole life has been leading to this moment. <laughs> <laughs> you might not be wrong. Okay, well, let's start with a nice, simple one. Here we go. fighting in that battle who were they you know who one was that's a dead giveaway on that yeah yeah yep. i said we'll start with an easy one oh, yeah. it was darth vader and i think he was fighting obi-wan i think that was a new hope yes good that is Holy correct. Crap. nicely done episode four four that is right kenobi versus vader episode four all right ready for the next one yes shorter clip there what do we got you heard shots in the background that's a giveaway to me okay oh i'm don't i've got none of these i think it's in, in episodes one through three because you heard the, the shots in the background there weren't many lightsaber battles when there was gunfire in the background. okay well give me what you got oh gosh can we listen to that one one more time yeah you got it one more time can you restate the question <laughs> That's my guess. That's okay, say it again. The first time they see Darth Maul. So who's fighting? There's two uh, people fighting. 
two people? Oh, well, then I can't read the first time because Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn were there when the first time they fought. I think it was episode two. Oh, yeah? I think it was Count Dooku and Obi-Wan Kenobi. What? No, Captain. Dang it. <laughs> after, you know, I was thinking of after Luke, uh, or Luke, after Anakin gets knocked out, he picks up Anakin's lightsaber and fights. Oh, or no, the other way around. The correct answer was Jinn versus Maul. Qui-Gon Jinn? Qui-Gon Jinn oh, okay. versus Maul. So one? There's, yep. there's... I was... You were close. You, well, you had it. You had it. You had it. There's, we'll give that. We'll give that one to you. There's uh, yeah. There's three lightsaber ignitions. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> and on the stretch. Yes. 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 <laughs> we'll give me a half point. So here we go. Number three. <laughs> when Han Solo got carbon froze. That's the that's the fight down. You think that's from, from uh, Empire? Yeah, okay. when, when they're down in the uh, carbonite chamber. <laughs> oh, okay. My, I think, I guess, would be uh, Count Dooku versus Yoda. Sounded pretty fast. No, Captain. Second guess, no. that's when Luke lost his hand. Nope, nope, nope. Everybody's wrong. That was episode three, Kenobi versus Skywalker. Oh, oh you I was hear, never gonna get that. You can hear a little bit of the fire, the lava in the background yeah. as everybody was cooking yeah, up. Yeah, there's something going a little, on there. little burning, a little raging there. I've only right. seen that movie like three times. I've only seen it once. Can I get a, a Super Mario Dead sound, please? All right. Anyway, <laughs> last one. We'll do. We'll do one more clip here. Correct. Good work. Very good. Thank you. So we each got two. Yeah. Oh, I got one and a half. You got two. <laughs> All right. So does that make Kevin our winner today? Woo! Barely. With well, thank you guys for playing Name That Lightsaber Duel. Can we plug some things real quick? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, I think uh, our friend Aaron, can't remember his last name, also Sherbert on the boards, is running a nice Warlands campaign. Yeah, that's coming up in just a couple weeks here. Yeah. A lot of car, hot car on car, post-apocalyptic... Well, we'll definitely be talking about the Warlands campaign and uh-huh. other games of that variety in an upcoming episode here. I also like to so plug, stay tuned. Yeah, plug our club championship that seems to be shaping up. Hit it. Or not. What uh, do you got? That, that's all I know. <laughs> that's <laughs> the it. The Bellingham Warhamsters Club Championship. Yes, indeed. Russ is putting that together. Yep. And uh, congratulations out to Smash the Dean on being the head of gaming for the Ninth Age at OFCC. Oh, is that right? Good job, Casey. Yeah. He's had a gaming on that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Good wow. luck to him. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Good luck to him. I hope it goes well for him. All right. So we're going to come back and talk about Armada. So my new love, and I really I'm surprised about how much I'm enjoying this game because when I first started playing, I Kevin just walked my ass, just terribly good. It's Armada. I'm finding that this is is really it's got a structure I like, it's got a system I like, it's got units I like, it's got depth that I really enjoy, and it feels way more casual than X-wing. X-wing feels very competitive. Armada feels very casual. It's just very approachable. 
I, I have fun even when I lose. It's really great to be playing with a, a Star Destroyer. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with the Imperial and getting away that victory. Let alone two or three Star Destroyers. Right, right. you know, and, and, and just that, that scale of Star Wars conflict. I didn't realize how much I would enjoy it, but I really am. Well, let's talk about, I mean, let's talk about Armada from how it differs from X-Wing because it's the newer game on the block and less people are probably familiar with how it functions. So what is really different about Armada compared to X-Wing. Well, I mean, really there's not a lot that it has in common with it. That's true. Um, I mean, one of the things that really uh, grabbed me about the game initially is that is the unique flight path system that it has with that articulating maneuver tool. Mm -hmm. um, because no game is that, that I've ever seen has anything no, similar No, and you look at, at that thing at first and you're kind of like, eh, I'm not sure if that's really going to hold up, but it does. Yeah, at first it looks kind of like it's just a gimmick to yeah. give it its own sort of unique sort of stamp. Yeah, but yeah. But it's a necessary and useful tool. Yeah. Yes. Um, it makes the ships flow in a, in a realistic way, or uh, at least an intuitive way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, coming from an X-Wing background, that I really like about it is that it allowed them because Armada was a later game, to correct some of the mistakes they made in X-Wing. Like the title ship, X, the X-Wing itself is kind of underpowered and they've been struggling to get that thing on the map by giving it little buffs here and there. Cards that the X-Wings can use, but in this, X-Wings are what they're supposed to be. They're Sure, maybe a little bit more expensive, but they are the jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, true. They they kill fighter fighters. Bombers. Well, yeah, they're, they're exactly they're fighter bombers. They did the same thing with the Hawk in the new um, Rogues and Villains fighter expansion. Mm -hmm. You know, the Hawk and X Wing is so overcosted and needs a bunch of things to get it even playable. Whereas it's a great support and disruption ship in Armada just right out of the gate. Right? I haven't even looked at it yet. Oh, it's good. It is. It seems like. Armada gets the theme better, like the feel of the fluff, if you will, of how it should perform on the table, correct with the uh, the background with the cannon almost. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It allows you to have characters like Han Solo flying around and, and, and being generally better than every other fighter on the on the board, because okay. that's the way he's supposed to be. In X-Wing, that can kind of ruin a game experience when it's like, well, Han Solo, of course, is better than your entire squadron because yeah, he's supposed yeah, to. So yeah. it's like, okay, well, I'm getting my hundred points are getting beat by sixty yeah. points of Han Solo. Yeah, he's, he's better by he's better than that little tiny uh, swarm of, of uh, Tie Fighters he got out there. But then he's up against three Dar Star Destroyers. Yes, yep. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that changes the battle. There's and there is kind of like a rock paper scissors element between the capital ships, the fighters, and the bombers. Right? You know, yeah. you have the fighters taking out the bombers. You have the bombers taking out the capital ships. You have the capital ships. Taking out the fighter. That, the difference of scale, like Armada is a larger scale, whereas X Wing is a dogfight. That would be. But yeah. for me, the main difference is um, X Wing is a maneuver game. You mm -hmm. set your dials, you're going to do your maneuvers. Mm -hmm. Whereas Armada is very forgiving on your maneuvers because mm -hmm. you can articulate that. You can take your time. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Uh, Armada is a game of plans yeah. and timing. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's no timing element to X Wing because there absolutely is. You set up your your, your kill vectors, right? Yeah. Right? But you do that through maneuver. Yeah. In Armada, you have to plan it out by your command dials. Like, that was always the thing that I had a hard time with in learning X Wing was knowing what those curves looked like, knowing right, what yeah. the banks looked like, knowing what the curves looked like, yeah. and being able to look at my little tiny dial that says three in this direction and go. Am I going to make that? I have no idea if that's going to fit in front of me or if I'm going to yeah. be running into other ships. But in, with with Armada, like you said, being able to take that tool, bend it back and forth to your you know, to your liking, that really makes it a, a much more simple, easy to play, casual feel to it that uh, takes some of the tension that I feel from playing X-Wing out. Yeah. And the other thing that I really like is that they made the choice of how many points to include uh, for the purposes of determining initiative. Oh, yeah. A way 
a choice that has way more implications in Armada than it does in X-Wing. Because in X-Wing, it's only relevant pretty much if your pilot skills are the same. Yeah. If there's no overlap in pilot skills, it doesn't matter who else Oh, yeah, in Armada, it's huge. It's yes. huge. It determines what scenario you're you're playing. It determines the order in which ships are being moved. You know, so, and it all starts with how many points do I want to include in this list in the first place? Do I even, does, is this a list that even needs to bid for initiative? Or is this a list that can go 400 out of 400 points and just give the opponent that power? To speak to our last game, you did a really good job with the maneuver tool of presenting two facings and getting me with both both attacks, but then staying only in my one facing. So you were maximizing your firepower while minimizing mine back. And I think to, to some degree, I, I mean, I'm not going to claim any sort of skill in doing so because, because you are locked in a little bit when it comes to the range of movement that you have with the maneuver tool because... You have one click in this direction or two clicks in this direction, and how exactly you, you uh, employ those things, you're still within a limited set of possible outcomes of your movement. You know. Yeah, sure. So I can try and and, and say, I, yeah, I'm really good at sneaking into the back of your spaceship there, but uh, yeah, I was I was dealt what I had. Yeah. You know? Well, and some ships are better at that than others. With the with the <laughs> their firing arcs aren't all yeah, the same. Yeah, that's true. That's you true. Know, some ships have wider front arcs than yes. you know the, the VSD has a really really wide front arc and really really powerful forward-facing cannons. So it's easy to catch things in that front. VSD oh. being? Uh, the Victory Star Destroyer. Yeah, okay. My mistake. The one that will never be used again because the Imperial is out there. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas on the, the Nebulon B is a lance. It has a very narrow front arc, and that has to be pointed right at the enemy. And its side arcs, it's, it has very low shields, and it doesn't have the hole to really stand up. So if you let it take side-on shots, it's going to go down really quickly. So it has to be pointed directly at your enemy pretty much the entire game. That's, that's, some, that's some good design right there. I mean, some good, yes. good mixing it up. You know? Yeah. But I think it allows for more of the quote-unquote fluff of it, you know? The ship in the stories, it was supposed to be a lance. This is how they set up for their, their, their naval yeah. battles, if yeah. you will. You know? And I, I appreciate that. Have you guys played a lot of um, a lot of other fleet scale games? Have you played a lot of BFG? Have you played a lot of uh, like Firestorm Armada or anything like that? I played some Firestorm Armada, no BFG. Though. Did you play any BFG? Oh. Yeah, I've got Back a, in the day. yeah, I've got a big Tau fleet for Battlefleet Gothic. That explains a lot of your skill. <laughs> uh, Battlefleet Gothic, right? Yeah. How would you How would you say that that this game compares to those ones? I think that the command dial system. Uh, really makes it feel like you're commanding capital ships. Because not only do you not have the freedom of movement to just bank 90 degrees or K-turn when you want to turn your ship around, you've got to... Uh, they're ponderous. They keep going the same direction they're yeah. going with minor, you know... Minor correction. Minor corrections. But um, also you're restricted with the orders that you've given yourself. Yes. You really have to plan the game out yeah. turns you've got to plan. Yeah, you've got to plan half of your game at the very first turn. Yes. For, yeah, for the big ships. Yeah. yeah, half the game. And that's not a system that I've seen in play with any other fleet command type game. You're usually able to make decisions on the current board state, not on the board state you have envisioned at okay. the outset. okay. But to me, that feels right. I mean, oh, yeah. I wouldn't expect an, an Imperial-class Star Destroyer to turn on a dime. No, no. I wouldn't expect to be able to, to coordinate all of those systems to make that happen. Right. You know? And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like, you know, compared to something like BFG or compared to Firestorm, this is a shorter range game. Oh, BF, yeah. BFG yeah. and Armada, those things are played on, well, first of all, they're, they're played on uh, six by four, oh, you know, tables. Okay. Yeah. And and they have some really long range shots that you yeah. can take in that game. Yeah, You're yes. firing torpedoes that could be arriving two turns later you know that you're shooting across the table at each other this game you're still limited to that foot-long uh, measuring stick that fantasy flight gives you so for that 
to happen, you, these ships have got to be a lot closer into each other. Yeah, and that's only for the ships that have the long-range turbo lasers. Sure, sure, you yeah, know, yeah. So, some of them are throwing out only blues or only blacks, blacks and, uh, you know, so they the incentive to get right up next to each other is, is that much bigger. I think that the ships are fairly, the ships, the capital ships are fairly robust, too. Mm. I mean, in Firestorm Armada, it, they were a bit weak. Yeah. So, like, that those long-range shots could be super effective. You could whittle somebody down to nothing yeah. effectively. In this game, you need to line up your shots. You need to pick a target and go for that because of the repair ability of each ship. You know, if you just put a couple things on it or you take it down low... Start cycling in your repair commands. Watch it come back. Well, you only got a couple turns to do it in. I mean, over a course yeah. of a six-turn game, the likelihood that you're even taking down capital ships seems limited. It doesn't happen all the time. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's by some, design. Yeah, that's by design. I think it's something that we have to learn as we're becoming better. At this game is try to figure out what you can realistically destroy in the amount of time you have. And we got to be clear to anybody that is listening to this thing that we are not pros no, at no. Star Wars Armada. We are on a learning curve right here. Yeah, we're all kind of in discovery mode, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes. Recently, I read a post on the Ordo Fanaticus website from, uh, I think it was D. Keeft. Sorry yep. if I'm butchering your name. And he was asking, like, what's the difference between dice? And that was the first time, and I, I went out and did some investigation. Yeah, you did a deep dive on this. Yeah, you? but that was the first time I went to the quote-unquote matrix of the game and broke it down into a competitive kind of a sense, like points efficiency, dice efficiency. Let's nerd it up. Well, I can nerd it up, but my point on this, and I will I will nerd it up, but I, won't, I felt good about not taking it to that level. Hmm. I, I felt, I don't even have an, an inkling, well, I have an inkling, but I don't have a hard way of saying points efficiency on a capital ship. Or, okay. on, or on a squadron. I have no idea for in the hard numbers. And I'm enjoying that. About okay, good. Game. Yeah, good. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of ways to, um, say, correct your attack dice in Armada. Whether it's the turbo laser upgrades you take, the offensive retrofits, maybe a, a weapons team or some sort of support team. There's a lot of ways that you can change your die results. How close do you want to look at figuring out, do I want to spend... Six points here, yeah. or eight points yeah. there. And On then, the chance that they're going to need this, this yeah. die in this game. Yeah. Well, I mean, in order to um, actually answer the guy's question, what have you got? What did you find in the... So, let's just look at all the dice. So, breaking it down by color. Black is your low range, blue are your mid range, and red are your long range mm -hmm. dice. Hey, um, I suggest everybody in the audience maybe take a moment here, pause the radio, go get your dice. Let's just dive into them and look at the facings. I'll start with black and work my way to red. You have a 50% chance of doing one damage with a black dice. Okay. Four facings are just one damage pip. So you have a 50% chance because they're eight-sided dice, right? Yep. There are two facings with damage and a crit, which is effectively two damage with the crit on. So there you have a 25% chance of doing double damage. But you also have a 25% chance of getting nothing from your black dice. There are two blank facings on this dice. Okay. So you have a 75% chance of a result with black dice. That's the long and short of that. TLDR, too long, didn't read. 75% chance of a result. Now who's black firing dice. black dice? Well, for I'm, I'm just an Imperial player, so Kevin will have to pipe in for the Rebels. But I really like black dice on my, uh, my gladiators. Yeah. Oh, I love sending those fast boys in and dumping black dice on people. Okay. But from a conceptual level, uh, black dice are ordnance. So if you think about missiles and torpedoes firing, they either hit you and do massive a ton of damage, or they don't hit you at all and they do no damage. Right. So that having that 75% chance of some damage being dealt, some to a lot, and 25% chance of none whatsoever makes a lot of There's sense. There's a lot of black dice on the fighters, though. On the bombers, more specifically. Yeah, yeah, because they're dropping those ordnance payloads. Yeah. Okay. 
And what are the blue dice? What do they represent? The blue dice are mostly your ion cannons, and you tend to have control and uh, disruption type. Yeah, you have mechanics. upgrades, upgrades uh, cards that allow you to, to uh, change the crit effect. That's right. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. I didn't realize that they represented those different um, weapon systems. Your blue dice are amazing. Like uh, like Kevin was saying, control. These are very reliable dice. There's something on every facing of these blue dice. Is there? Yes. There's no blanks? No blanks. Oh, You're no. always going to get a result. You just might have redundant accuracies. Yeah. Look at me to never turn the dice over. <laughs> right. 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 Well, I mean, that just speaks to the, who you are. As, you know, you it's know. very true. And, and that's a compliment. I, I take it as one. You should. <laughs> so you have, again, with blue, you have that. You have 75% chance of doing one damage because there's... Four one damage facings and two crit facings. So that's, two crit facings. Yes. Okay, cool. So that will give you one damage. The other two facings are and accuracy. Yes. Sir. It's the crit facings that are changed by the card effects on a lot of the blue dice upgrade cards. And this will help you like make decisions or a more informed decision. Again, getting into the matrix of it. Like if you are going to change effects on your blue, realize that you have a twenty five percent chance per dice. To make that happen. So hmm. it's not something that you want to rely on. Yeah. It's not it's not a theme you want for a ship, I don't believe. So yeah, I broke down the blue dice. Any questions, guys, before I roll on? No. To red dice. Hit, hit me with the reds. Okay, red is the worst dice, actually, which makes sense because it's the most long range. And yeah, what system right. is that? Turbo lasers? That's your turbo lasers and your laser cannons. Okay. Here you only have 75% chance of a result again, but you only have a 62.5% chance of damage. Okay. So, so what's that? Five out of five out of eight facings? Yes. Okay. It's slightly it's just slightly slower, but it is lower. And there's only a twenty five percent chance of crit. Now all of them have the same chance of crit. Oh. The blue, red, black, oh. doesn't matter. I didn't realize, realize that. that. Yeah. They all have two facings with crit on them. There is one accuracy on red for a twelve point five percent chance of accuracy. So if you're gonna upgrade something for an accuracy on red, I suggest again, don't don't do that. Right. Um, and there's only a twelve point five percent chance of double damage on red. So there's two dice that can give you double damage: blues and reds, or excuse me, blacks and reds. Reds being the worst choice on those. But reds are where you're going to be shooting early on in the game. And yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the, the long range game is the long range game. And I, and I think that from what I've experienced with it, and I don't know how long this will hold true, but it seems like in terms of adding dice to your attack pool, I think the, the red dice are the easiest to add to because yeah. they're the most unreliable yeah. dice. I see that a lot. You just throw buckets of them and hope that it comes out the way you want to. Whereas the blue dice and the black dice are a little less liberally applied just because they are so much more generally useful. And the red dice are going to be seeing a lot of use for the uh, focused fire command because that, that that happens to be one of the commands that I think is just used the most in the game. For now. I have a question about those, actually, which is the on the dials, um, the activate squadron command. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if I move on? Absolutely. Right. The question that I have in mind is, is the activate squadron command undervalued? Yes. You think? Yeah. You, you, Fuck yes. Okay. So I'm going to drop an F-bomb on that. <laughs> That's fine. Well, I think, I think the issue is that if you were trying to build a fleet that uses squadrons well, yeah. you have to start looking at that command, which means that you're, there's four commands that are competing for your attention. Of course. And for the timing. And I think that's one reason that squadrons have been largely left out. To anybody that hasn't actually played Armada yet, there are only four commands that you could be using here. Right. And one of them is the uh, squadron command, which allows you to activate squadrons out of turn. I feel that the squadron command is a mastery level command. I think so. Yes. Like... As your own play, I think being able to effectively use a squadron mastery level. Yeah, probably true. Because it's 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 your third attack on your on your capital ship. You can line up 
two facings and then bring in these these bombers or whatever your squadrons are and just annihilate which does it particularly matter because they activate out of order do you think it particularly matters what what uh order the shooting happens in do you think that it matters that the squadrons get to go before the capital ships fire yes absolutely why uh, because squadrons throw out a lot of little dice, uh-huh. and so they can chip away at the shields. Because there's not as much incentive. Like a, a brace token doesn't do you any good if you're only getting hit for one damage. Oh, that's true. I didn't even so, consider so, that. So, so you just kind of sit there on your on your tokens, your defense tokens. You can't evade them. Yeah. You can't brace them. They make you use up your defensive tokens, or or, or not use them and just take little nips out, yeah. of, your, out of your okay. out of your shields. Then when the big shot does come, uh-huh. you have your defensive tokens, but you can still only do so much with it. Right. To me, squadrons are the death of a thousand cuts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which is what you did to my Imperial class Star Destroyer. Yeah, you know, and I, while I was doing that, it never really became clear to me that, that what I was doing was any more effective than just having them go in their normal order. I don't think I... Actually, now that I think about it, I don't think I really had a ship close enough to activate as many of them as needed to make that effective. So like you say, probably mastery level play for having your capital ships close enough to, their, to your fighters. And then at the same time, close enough to the other... Uh, to the enemy ships to actually make them useful to pull those things out of order. But aside from the timing, it also just gives you flexibility with with how to use your squadrons because you can either shoot and then move uh-huh. with the order, or move and then move shoot. and shoot, which is gets you that range game. That Whereas you're if you're waiting, to, if you're waiting until the the squadron phase at the end of the turn, then you only get to do one, one or, or the, the other. other. Yep. And I think with the new Rogues and Villains expansion, it really opens the door for making self sufficient fighters. Okay. So that people don't have to feel chained to that activate squadron command. Uh, the Rogue rule allows you in the squadron activation phase. To move and then shoot. Wait, the, the rogue rule? It's just, it's just a rule that a lot of the new uh, rogues and villains ships have. So like a regular YT-2400, it's uh-huh. a squadron unto itself and yep. it has the ability rogue, yep. which allows it to move and shoot in the uh, in the squadron phase. Wow. So there's no, there isn't that incentive there to have to have the capital ship to babysit them. Another comment on those rogues and villains. The name, like, uh, who, is, who is the one you were talking about? That's um, uh, Dash Rendar. Dash Rendar. Dash Rendar is a premium. He's like 26 points. 24. 24. Yeah. Big. That is big. However, the ship that he's in is only like, what, 12? 16. 16, which isn't that bad. Hmm. Yeah. But he's a 50% increase in cost to get his uh, his additional benefits. Yeah, but, but just this, this ship itself is rogue too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So you don't have to dump a lot of points in these effective ships to get some of that benefit. But you'll be tempted to. <laughs> the rogues and scoundrels faction it kind of runs into the same sort of problem that x-wing did which is that you have a limited scope of recognizable ships yeah. you know what yeah. i'm saying especially and, at that scale and especially at that scale and and then you got to talk about the larger ships there isn't any to, to really think of in the basic universe not i mean in extended universe i'm sure you'll see other stuff out there but there's there's not a ton of them so my question is in terms of the ships that are in the game have they already shot their wad on the recognizable ships? I, I think so, for the most part. I mean, they're drawing a lot from, I believe, Star Wars Galaxies, uh, which I've never played, but I know that a lot... Was that the MMOG? Uh, yeah. Yes, maybe. All right. Uh, no, it, it was a strategy game. It was a space combat strategy game. Are there any other large recognizable ships that can be brought into this game? I think that's uh, an opportunity for the franchise as it goes on. And that's kind of what I'm hoping to see from the from the new Star Wars movies. And we didn't see it in Episode Seven. There no. were no large fleet battles, and we can probably expect to see some in the coming movies. What I'm hoping is that with the death of Starkiller Base, or the destruction of Starkiller Base at the end of that movie, they'll, they'll finally realize... That this isn't an effective 
business model. Like, this isn't how you get damage done. What you do is you sink the same amount of resources into a massive navy, and you can get as sure a planet kill by just combined fire. So I'm hoping that there's more uh, Armada ships coming out from the new series. I just wonder if, if they've limited themselves in the scope that this game can go to, because the other place that it can't go is it can't go bigger. You're not going to get a Super Star Destroyer out there. Right. right. That's too big. It's like that little model you were talking about. <laughs> right. you, you were doing the, the scale experiment of the model that was the size of the battery and uh, you know scaled up to the model that was the size of the, of the boot, right? Mm, yeah. yep. If you wanted to take a Super Star Destroyer on that scale, you're talking about, you measured it out. It's roughly the size of, uh, I think it was a four-foot folding table, card table, if you would. Yeah, nobody's packing that in any kind of foam case. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, as far as just the, the source material to draw from for, for ships of that scale, but I think the, one, the success that they really did have was creating enough depth of rules that even if they didn't double the number of ships that are in the game over the course of the next couple of years, there's still a lot, I agree a, a lot of reason to keep playing this game and yeah. make minor tweaks to the list you're running, there the are, way you run it. There are tons of interlocking uh, mechanisms yeah. to, yes. to be exploited in this Absolutely. game. Absolutely. I, I love that aspect. The depth. I love that. So, overall, um, we're pretty bullish on Armada right now. Yeah. I love that when you got a whole little swarming starfighter battle going on between two capital ships that are passing by each other at speed yeah. three, and they've got both of their side batteries facing each other, and they're just blowing the hell out of each other and picking off their, with their secondary fire any fighters that are in the middle of this whole thing. This is a very, very cinematic game. Absolutely. Yeah. That was Star Wars Armada, and I think we're going to take a break. All right, guys. Well, that was really fun. I want to thank uh, Kevin and Lauren for coming in today and recording this. And I want to say thank you to our listener. And uh, again, thank you to all the people who are coming back in time and listening to the first episode again after having listened to us for so many long-running episodes (laughs) of our show here. What we're going for here is about... An hour-long show once a month. We're not going to be pushing anything too hard right now. We're going to base it around a theme like we did today and uh, talk about some movies, some games, some geek culture, some video games. That's sort of where we want to be. I want to say also thank you to our uh, studio audience. What was that? How'd you fit all the Wookiees in here? (laughs) Uh, I had to move the cat. Anything else you guys got to say? Thanks for having me, Brad. Remember gamers, if you want to play and you want to succeed, you only need two things. Skill and roll some bones. Taking us out today will be Mr. Poe Dameron himself, Oscar Isaac, covering Bill Murray's Star Wars theme. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway They say there's always magic in the Kylo Ren is back in knee.
does he scare you as much as he scares me? Get going, you pirate! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>